0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 41 down through 51, well, 52, and this may sound familiar because I did actually preach this text only a little over six months ago, so if that is familiar, that's, that's why. But I thought, when I was planning, should I skip over and just go to the next chapter? I thought, nah, we'll go back to those verses again, because I believe that it's the next one in our text, and I'm sure there's things that we can learn again that are important to us. Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 41, down through the rest of the chapter, Dr. Luke records these words for us. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances." So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers." So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth, And was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truths of your word when we yield ourselves to your spirit. And so we pray that... Even as Jesus cried out when he taught, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, that you would give us the ears to hear your word, and that we would embrace it as it truly is the word of God. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together, together as Christians who have been redeemed by Jesus, and I pray that we would encourage each other, exhort each other, and that through this look at the life of the young Jesus, we would be challenged. To be about your business, for we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes you look at a significant figure in history and you wonder, what was that person like at a certain age? Um, for me, my wife just recently for Christmas got me a book, and it's a collection of essays on the life of John Calvin. Most of us, if you're familiar at all with the Reformation, know John Calvin is a significant name, and you probably know that he wrote a lot of significant works, one of the most famous, obviously, being his the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was a systematic theology that was meant to explain the orthodoxy of the Protestant faith. But one of the things you may not be aware of is his childhood, and you could look at any significant person in human history and wonder, what about that person's childhood do I not know? Some of you may not even know all the details of your own parents' background. I know a lot of my parents' background, but I don't know all of it, and I'm sure there there are some things they could tell me that I wouldn't know now, even after all these years. The same could be true of Jesus. Maybe it's just me, but maybe you're like me. Sometimes I think, okay, we have the Gospels, and we've got... Three years of Jesus' life recorded, or at least portions of those three years, because John would write the fact that many more things we could write about this guy, but the world couldn't even contain the books that he did. But there's basically 30 years of his life we know very little, in fact, almost next to nothing about. And what I wouldn't give to just be a fly on the wall to know, what was he like when he was six? What was he like when he was four and two? I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I know what they're like, but they're not the perfect son of God. So what was Jesus like at four? What was Jesus like at two? And the reality is, is we just don't know. The scriptures aren't filled with any of those details. And there are, admittedly, some what we refer to as apocryphal works. They're not really true, but works that people wrote down where they said, hey, this actually happened when Jesus was a kid. Um, And... There's, there's crazy stuff like Jesus making a clay pigeon, literally out of clay, and then speaking to it and turning it into a real pigeon. But those kind of things are just fake. They aren't actual stories of what happened. What we do know about his childhood is in this book, and we're not given very much, but we are given one incident. One incident in his life when he was 12 years old. I don't remember much about when I was 12 years old. I remember some things. But this significant event of Jesus at 12 years old pales any other experience you and I have had when we were 12 or any experience you have had with your kids when they are or were 12 years old. So what about Jesus in this story do we learn? Well, I think for today what I want us to do is look at what Jesus did, what he said, and what that means for us. Because ultimately, any time we read the scriptures, we have to not only ask, what does it say and what does it mean? But then we have to say, okay, what does that mean for me? Why should I take these verses, these passages from the holy word of God and live it out? And that's what I want us to do. But let's first look at the story and see what we can observe about it. We begin in verse 41, where we read that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Passover. This is what any good Jewish person would be doing. They would be celebrating one of the most significant events in the history of the Jewish people, the Passover. This event, of course, is recorded in the book of Exodus, where Moses, the man of God, is given the charge by God to go to the Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, and proclaim to him, let my people go to which the Pharaoh would, of course, harden his heart, and God would remove his restraining grace on the heart of Pharaoh and let his own heart harden itself, because that's what his heart wanted. And he would continually resist Moses' appeal to let the people of God go. And God would use Moses to proclaim all of these these things that, that Pharaoh was supposed to listen and to hear and obey, and he refused, and so then God said to Moses, all right, I want you to do this. And, of course, there are the plagues that happened. But the last one is the one that people of the Jewish background were remembering when they celebrated the Passover. God had told his people, there is going to be an angel of death who comes in the night, and if there is no blood on your doorposts, your firstborn son will die. And so the Jewish people were given specific instructions by God to kill a lamb, to put the blood on the doorposts of their house so that the Lord who had sent his angel of death would pass over them. And that was what broke Pharaoh because he didn't have the blood on his doorposts. So his firstborn died that night. And while the Egyptian people weep and wail and mourn the loss of their firstborn, Pharaoh says, go. And then Moses instructs the people, don't forget what God did for you. He delivered you out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt to deliver you into the promised land that I had promised to your forefathers. It was God who had done it. And you are to celebrate this Passover, this feast, year after year after year. Why? To remind yourself of who God is, who you are, and what God has done. So here is Joseph, Mary, going up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And now this is the 12th time Jesus is experiencing this because he's 12 years old according to verse 42, 42. And they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And they go there and they go through this feast, which was typically seven days, go through the feast, and they're enjoying themselves. It's a big holiday feast. It's like a glorified, for us, just kind of give a slight comparison, it's like a a glorified Christmas feast celebration. We're celebrating together what God has done. And then they finished up in verse 43. And they're all getting together, and frequently they would be traveling together as groups, as a family unit. Because unlike today, traveling back then took longer, was more perilous, and it was better for you to travel in large groups lest you be waylaid by bandits and robbers. So Jesus and his family had all gone to Jerusalem as a group. And they would have this big caravan, and frequently the older kids would end up in the back. Well, they leave Jerusalem, and Joseph and Mary are walking out with the group, only to find that Jesus isn't with them. But they're not bothered. It's not a big deal. Jesus is probably with his cousins, with his friends in the back of the caravan. Like I said, this is a large group. We're talking about a whole bunch of people because we don't want to get attacked, is their thought process. So they travel a day's journey. They finally circle the wagons, as it were. They, they prepare for the evening. And after they have circled the wagons and they're preparing for the evening, suddenly Mary and Joseph look at each other and they say, all right, uh, where's Jesus? Where'd he go? Now, I don't know if at this point there are other siblings yet, step-siblings. I don't know if Mary and Joseph have had other little kids. So perhaps it's possible Mary's taking care of the little kids if they have other ones, and she's saying, hey, Joseph, where's Jesus? <laughs> didn't you have him? Joseph says, no, I, I didn't. I, I guess I assumed maybe he was with the back with the other kids. I'll go take a look and, and ask around our relatives. He's probably in one of their tents. So Joseph walks around, going tent to tent, knocking on each tent door. Hey, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? One by one by one. The answer is no. Now, as a parent, your heart starts to beat a little faster. Uh, At this point, Laura and I haven't lost the boys yet, but I do know eventually at some point they're going to be running around somewhere and I'm going to be like, oh no, we forgot them. We left them at the store. We left them at church or something. It's probably going to happen. And that's probably going to be a terrifying experience. Some of you perhaps have even experienced what that's like. You thought you had your kids with you, and all of a sudden one of them's not there. And you're terrified because now it seems like they're helpless. You're the protector. You're supposed to be the one caring for them, and they're gone. Well, I can only imagine Joseph coming back to Mary and saying, Mary, I don't know where he is. I don't think he's here. He's not with us. None of the relatives have seen him. None of the cousins have seen him. I don't think, I think he's back in Jerusalem. The moment of terror in the heart of Mary at her oldest son's disappearance probably cannot be described with words. So they've looked for him. They didn't find him in verse 45. And so what did they do? They didn't say, well, he's 12. He technically could be old enough to care for himself at this point in the eyes of the Jewish people. 12 to 13 was around the age when they were considered at the point where they could care for themselves, but they're concerned. He's in Jerusalem. So we've traveled a day looking for him. We've got to travel a whole other day, go back to Jerusalem, and then once we get to Jerusalem, we've got to figure out where he went. And imagine, like any parent, you're thinking of the worst-case scenario. Like, oh no, he's in Jerusalem by himself. He doesn't know anybody there because all of the family that he traveled with is with us. He's in a town where he may have been kidnapped, he may have been killed. He may be lost in the wilderness because maybe he realized we left and so he's running looking for us. I mean, every scenario you can think of is probably going through Mary and Joseph's head as they're traveling an entire day's journey again back to Jerusalem. And Mary's heart is probably unsettled. In fact, one of the themes that Luke emphasizes over and over again in these first two chapters is the fact that Mary is a thinker. When Mary sees the angel visit her for the first time, she pondered in her heart what this visit must be and what it must mean. When the shepherds come to the stable and they see Jesus in the manger and Mary, and they fall down and worship him and then leave glorifying God and telling everybody they passed by what they had seen and what the angels had told them, Mary kept all those things and pondered them in her heart. And later on, we realize that his mother, in verse 51, after the whole events of this, kept all these things in her heart. Whatever kind of personality profile we could give to Mary, we can give to her this. She was a thinker. She thought. Imagine now, she's at the point where every situation is going through her mind of what has happened to her son. And you have to wonder... If she's maybe thinking, God gave me this child miraculously. This child was born through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. Joseph's not the dad. No other human being is the dad. This is the work of God. And now I've lost him? She probably is wondering, did I mess up God's plan? Because I'm supposed to be the one caring for this boy. I'm supposed to be the one making sure that he grows up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. Did I mess up God's plan? They finally get to Jerusalem. And at this point, they, they traveled a day out, realize he's not there, looked around the family, he's not there, traveled a day back, And now it probably took them at least another half a day going through Jerusalem, searching everywhere they possibly could to find him, asking every stranger, hey, have you seen our son? He goes by the name Jesus. He's around 12 years old. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? He was wearing this. He's about this high. They're probably going over and over, over every detail, asking every person they can see. They don't care if they don't know the person. All they care about is finding their son. Till finally, in verse 46, After three days, they found him. In the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, the teachers, the religious leaders, the elite, the educated. But he was doing things that was unusual for a child his age, at 12 years old. He was listening to them talk. But he was asking them questions. And again, Luke is just tantalizing us because he doesn't say what Jesus was asking. And I just wish I, he had maybe just given us a glimpse of what were the kinds of questions Jesus was asking these men about the very words that he himself had breathed out. But we do know this that whatever questions he was asking them, according to verse 47, everyone who heard him was astonished at his understanding and answers. Think about it. 12-year-old child sitting amongst PhDs, asking them a question he already knows the answer to probably. And these are hard questions. They're thinking through the questions and they try to give an answer, but then he gives them an answer. And the PhDs are absolutely astounded at his understanding and wisdom that he exhibits in his interaction with them. Now, what we have to be careful here is not to diminish the reality of the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus in his human nature did not know everything, but Jesus in his divine nature, of course, he knew the plan of God. He knew everything. He he could even discern the thoughts of people as they were thinking. But here Jesus is still asking them questions and they're giving answers and he's saying, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And they're astonished. Mary and Joseph probably come into the temple and just have the sigh of relief seeing their boy alive and then have this quizzical look. As they listen to the conversation, they don't interrupt just right away. They see him there, but then they listen to him talking to them and them answering his questions and him saying, well, what about this and what about that? Have you thought about this? And they're beginning to wonder, what child is this? This is unusual. But of course, As they're standing there amazed, all of a sudden, Mary, who's been thinking for three days about the fact that her son could be in a gutter right now, beaten and bruised, possibly even dead, finally sees her son alive and well. And all of a sudden, it's almost as if I wonder there's a righteous indignation in her mind and heart. What do you think you're doing? In fact, she says, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. I, could, I think if I'm using my imagination here, I think I could say safely that Mary has shed tears in those three days. Her son has been missing and every scenario in her mind has played out and every one of them is bad. So she says to him, what are you doing? Can you not see the anxiousness of our minds and our hearts? We've been looking for you everywhere. I mean, if I'm Joseph, and I see Jesus there, and I think, okay, we've been gone for three days. What did he do in those three days? Was he literally 24 hours a day in the temple talking to people? I mean, did he not at least at some point think, hey, I wonder where mom and dad went. I mean, it's nighttime now, day one. Where are they? I don't know. I guess I'll just sleep here in the corner of the temple, and I'll wait till the next day. I mean, if if I were Joseph, I'd be thinking those things. What were you thinking? Did you not at least consider looking for us? Why were you here for three days without even so much as seeming to have any kind of concern? So I think both parents are rightly distressed because they, they, one, they are parents. They care about their children. But I think they're also distressed because they don't understand something. In fact, Jesus, when he replies to them, says to them, why did you seek me? Why did you seek me? It's almost as if Jesus has this expectation that they should have known exactly where he was. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business. If you have the New King James translation, which I have in front of me here, you'll notice that the my father's business there is all capitalized as far as the first letter of the word. And the reason why that's important is because the translators are trying to help us to understand that what Jesus is saying is he's not talking about Joseph, his earthly father's business. Of course he knew what his father did, No doubt, like any Jewish boy, he was helping his father, Joseph, in the various responsibilities that he had with being a carpenter. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. When he says, I must be about my father's business, he's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about the first person of the triune Godhead sent by the father in obedience to the plan to bring about the salvation of souls. Mary and Joseph hear him respond that way. And for some of us, we may think, wow, that almost sounds like a little disrespectful. You're saying that to your parents. I mean, if Benjamin or Daniel said that to me, I would probably be a little upset. But I do think Mary and Joseph understood something about Jesus, and that is that he had a unique origin. That's what Luke has been saying for, the, for these last two chapters. Jesus is no ordinary human. And when we read our scripture reading this morning from John 18, and Pilate asks him, Are you a king? Here was Jesus' response. You say rightly that I am a king, for this cause I was born And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is saying, my birth was not random. My coming to earth was not unintentional, but rather filled and fueled with intention and purpose. God the Father sent the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, for a specific purpose, to bear witness to the truth, ultimately, of the gospel. For Jesus himself would say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. His Father's business that he had to be about was instructing people on what the truth was about themselves and about God. In fact, I mentioned earlier John Calvin in this book, Laura Got Me for Christmas. John Calvin opens his institutes with that essential premise that we as Christians, in order to rightly understand the world around us and understand the scriptures and everything, we have to know who God is and we have to know who we are. Jesus, in this very simple statement, asks a question, like a good Jewish lawyer would do. When, they ask, when somebody asks you a question, you respond not by giving a declarative sentence, but by actually asking a question yourself back to them. His mom says, did you not see us anxiously looking for you? Why have you done this? And Jesus doesn't say, because. He asks two questions. Why were you looking for me? And didn't you know I had a purpose that I was sent here for and to do? I was sent to do my father's business. Verse 50 tells us they did not, the parents did not understand why Jesus said that. Think about it. It's been 12 years since Joseph and Mary saw an angel. And the angel told them, The child that will be born in you, you will call Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was 12 years ago at this point. And I'm pretty sure no angel had visited them since then. So here, Jesus is reminding them after 12 years of, again, fairly normal life, I have a purpose for which I came. And I need to be about that business. They didn't understand the statement that he spoke to them. But he turned to the PhDs, the religious leaders, said, thank you for your time. Thank you for answering my questions. Thank you for interacting with me. And according to verse 51, he went back with them and was in subjection to them. And Mary walks out of the temple pondering that entire scenario and situation in her heart and mind. And the only other statement that we're given about the the childhood of Jesus is in verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. His mind was developing. Physically, he was growing, and he was increasing and growing both in favor with God, his Father, who watched him doing the business he sent him to do, as well as with man, as he obediently followed his parents and for the remainder of the next 15 plus years obeyed them until the time of his earthly ministry should begin. Luke records for us this tantalizing story. In my opinion, it's fascinating. Jesus was called by his parents as a, somebody who was causing us to be worry warts. And he says, I came here for a purpose, and my purpose was to fulfill the business of my father. We are not given the same task that Jesus was given. Jesus was tasked with coming to earth, living a perfect holy life, being in subjection to his parents, living righteously, demonstrating his identity and performing miracles, even raising people from the dead proclaiming wondrous teachings. I read yesterday in my personal Bible reading, Matthew 6, and some of the most precious truths of Jesus' teaching over his life are found in that chapter. Don't worry. Your father knows what you need. Just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things you're worrying about will be added to you. Jesus did all those things in accordance with his father's will and purpose, and then he was delivered up according to the predetermined plan of God, into the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees who lied about him, who said all manner of false things against him, who had him ultimately condemned to die the death of a crucifixion, who would be buried for three days, but who would be raised from the dead and appear to many people and then ascend to the Father in heaven. That was his calling. That was his Father's business. But what about us? What is the Father's business for us as Christians? I think there are four things that that I think we as Christians should be doing in, in any church. This should be one of their emphases. Number one, evangelism. Matthew 28, when Jesus is about to leave the disciples He says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and behold, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. We are tasked By the disciples, by by Jesus to his disciples, to their disciples, to the followers of the disciples who multiplied over the course of church history till 2,000 years later where we are today in 2024, tasked with evangelizing the lost. Where is that happening in your life? Where is that happening in your life? Are you actively fulfilling the Father's business that he's called for you to do in evangelizing the lost? And that could be your family, could be... Somebody who you work with. Could be a friend that you know, your neighbors. What are you doing to fulfill the Father's business? Number two, exhortation. Hebrews 10.25 says that we are not supposed to be forsaking the assemblings of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more, as we see the day approaching, we are supposed to exhort each other. Exhort each other. Why are we gathered here this morning? Is it just to hear a sermon and sing some songs and then say we did our religious duty? Or are we being fed by the word of God and exhorted by the word of God so that we in turn can go and exhort our families and go and in in turn exhort one another even as we leave from this place to do the Father's business for us as the church? That's what he's called us to do. Why do so often we not do that? And I'm saying that of myself as well. We don't. We don't exhort each other. And we don't, number three, encourage each other. Unfortunately, this is one of the things that I feel so burdened about because it seems as though it's so easy in our day and age with technology and with social media to just criticize and tear down. And yet we are called by God to be encouragers. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, if you have the King James Version, it talks about bowels and mercies, but in the New King James here, which I think is a little better, for us in our modern language he says if there is any consolation in christ if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy being like minded having the same love being of one accord of one mind let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself let each of you look out not only for his own interest but also for the interests of others We're supposed to be encouraging one another. And yet all too often, we are caught up in the spirit of the age in criticizing and tearing down. And we ought to be ashamed of ourselves if that is what we are doing as God's people. We need to be encouraging one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. The days are getting darker and more evil. If we are not going to be lights and be separate and different from the world, we will soon see our impact diminish. Jesus Christ was an encourager. And in the course of the early church, he gave people whose specific ministry was to be encouragements. Barnabas, the son of consolation, the encourager. Maybe that's you. Maybe God has called you to be that person, to be an encourager, someone who builds up. Somebody who lifts up the person who's discouraged and down. Where are you fulfilling God's business of encouraging other Christians? And finally, equipping people. This is what we as the church ultimately are called to do. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, well, let me back up. Jesus himself gave some of the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for this purpose— For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's business is that we become like Christ. And how do we do that? Through taking those groups of people that Paul just mentioned. He gave some evangelists and prophets and pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints. God gave to us this hierarchy, if you will, this structure so that all of us could be equipped together to do his purpose and that we in turn could go and do the work of God's business and equip each other. What are you doing to equip the next person sitting in the pew next to you? Jesus was tasked with a specific business that he went to do. And even though his mother went and asked questions, and of course as a mother her heart is breaking because for three days she's been wondering, is my son even alive? But Jesus still understood that even if his mother was maybe slightly perturbed at what he had done, he still had a business to do. Regardless of whether or not the world likes what God has called us to do, we do it. Whether or not the person sitting next to you likes what God has called us to do, we do it. Not because we want to make people upset, but because we want to please the Father. So just as Jesus needed to be in his Father's house, doing his Father's business, obeying what his Father had sent him to do, so I believe we as Christ's bride, the church, should be doing his work for what he's called us to do. And there's more that we could add to this list. I just gave you four. They were all ease, so that made it easier. But these are things that we are called to do. What has God called you as part of his church to do to fulfill his father's business? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't tell us to do something and then give us no kind of model or example to follow. You yourself were the model for us initiating in coming to earth while we were rebels, not wanting to obey you or to hear you, not wanting to hear your word, not wanting to hear the truth about ourselves. You initiated and you sent Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, to fulfill the plan predetermined before the foundation of the world that would ultimately result in the salvation of so many people, including many people in this room, in this moment. And you modeled that selfless humility, you modeled that obedience to the word, regardless of whether or not people liked it. There were so many people who were angry with Jesus in his ministry. Even his own mother, who was likely distressed by him being gone for so long, yet he still believed it was his duty to fulfill his father's business. Lord, give us a boldness to proclaim the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel, and to obey and be the church we are called to be, regardless of the cost, regardless of if the world likes it or not. Help us to be about our father's business to the praise of your glory, we pray. Amen.